Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a legendary figure from the American Old West, Wild Bill Hickok. This was a, he was a bloke who, of course, was a famed gunslinger and a lawman uh, from the late 19th century, and he did a bit of everything. He drove stagecoaches, he fought for the Union during the American Civil War, he became a lawman in the frontier territories later on after that, then tried his hand at acting and showmanship, and even made a living throughout this period as, as a gambler for a while. So, on top of all of this, though, really, the most famous thing about this bloke, of course, were his skills with firearms. He was a very talented marksman indeed, and he had a number of well-known shootouts throughout his career. We're going to talk about some of them today. You'll often hear Wild Bill described as, you know, a, a cowboy, one of these one of these people who, you know, is so closely associated with the American Old West this, this time and this place in history. Um, and while there is that association, while we do strongly associate the Old West with cowboys, that word has a much more specific meaning, one that actually doesn't really apply to Wild Bill. So I'm not going to be calling him a cowboy today. Cowboys were, in fact, the the people who uh, who used to, and I suppose still do, uh, work on uh, on ranches, cattle ranches in North America. Uh, the cowboy traditions go all the way back. Uh, they go through the uh, the Mexican Vaquero and even further back to cattle ranches in, in actually in medieval Spain. So... I mean, these days, you know, when we hear cowboy, we think of the hats and the pistols and the saloon doors swing, you know, to honky-tonk piano music and, and all that sort of stuff. That's definitely the world that Wild Bill lived in. But calling him a cowboy a little bit, if we're going to be very sort of uh, technical about it, not not accurate because, again, he never really worked on a ranch. Anyway, despite that, very bloody famous figure. You probably at least heard his name before, if not, you know, heard about his exploits and adventures. He's been portrayed in countless bits of pop- popular media, uh, films, TV shows, all sorts, books, whatever. And on top of this, in his lifetime, he also rubbed shoulders with plenty of other famous figures from the American Old West, Buffalo Bill, Calamity Jane, the infamous John Wesley Harden. You'll get to know him a little bit better later on in this episode, let me tell you that. But before we begin, a couple of people to thank for this episode. Bowden Smith got in touch to suggest that I have a look into some Old West gunfights, and Richard Jaggers was the one who suggested John Wesley Harden as a topic. And these avenues of research, while well, neither of them actually suggested Wild Bill specifically as a topic, these avenues of research led me to this bloke, and uh, bloody hell, what a story it is. So uh, let's not muck about any longer. Let's get underway here with the tale of one of the American West's most famous and celebrated gunfighters, Wild Bill Hickok. Here we go then, mate. All right, so we're going all the way back all the way back here to 1837 to a town called Homer in Illinois in the United States. These days it's known as Troy Grove rather than Homer. Um, And on the 27th of May in 1837, young James Butler Hickok was born. He was the son of William Alonzo Hickok Hickok and Polly Butler. Uh, His dad was an abolitionist, William uh, Hickok the, uh, the, the Elder, was an abolitionist uh, involved in uh, anti-slavery Quaker movements and by some accounts uh, even was part of the Underground Railroad, used his uh, his farmstead as a, as a safe place for, for runaway slaves. So he's come from a good sort, it seems, young, uh, young James Butler Hickok. As it turned, uh, as as he as he as he grew up, it turned out that even as a young bloke, he had a real knack with pistols. He was a crack shot. He became uh, locally well known for it as well. He'd go off and he'd hunt game for his family. He was one of six kids. Uh, while his parents and siblings worked at the farmstead, he would he would go off hunting. 
But uh, anyway, as he as he sort of grew up through the years, again known throughout his childhood as as uh, James James Hickok was the name that he was given at birth, or J B Hickok. Uh, he he didn't take the moniker Wild Bill until later on, as we'll talk about. Um, anyway, ran into a spot of bother at the age of 18. He got into a fight with another bloke, and while fighting, they fell into a canal, right? They're both pissed as chooks, and they fell into a canal uh, while they're having this scrap, and they both ended up thinking that they had killed the other, right? So both Hickok and the bloke that he was fighting, both of them thought that they had killed the, the other person they were fighting with, and both of them thought they were going to be in big trouble. So young Hickok, again, who who's going by James at this point in his life, he fled Illinois as a result because he thought, you know, he'd be wanted for killing this fellow, even though he hadn't actually killed him. And so it was that in 1855, he fled his native Illinois and it ended up in the Kansas Territory. Now, Kansas wasn't a state at this point, wouldn't become a state for a couple more years. But in the Kansas Territory, he worked there as an anti-slavery vigilante with a group you may have heard of known as the Jayhawkers. This was a period of Kansan history known as uh, uh, Bleeding Kansas. And there was a great big scrap going on as to whether Kansas would be admitted into the Union as a free state or a slave state. And, and, and Hickok was one of the blokes who was out there putting his life on the line to make sure that Kansas entered the United States of America as a free state. It's worth pointing out at this stage, I think, that Wild Bill is usually, and I say usually, portrayed as the good guy in popular media that, he, that involves him. He's usually the hero lawman or whatever, you know, but that tends to be his role in stories. And, and, and as you'll see as we talk more about this bloke, it might not have been the case, you know, 100% of the time, but it looks like for the most part that, you know, while Bill Hickok, was, he was a decent bloke. He was a dead set abolitionist. That much is certain. There's no doubt about that. He's off fighting and risking his life, not just during the American Civil War, as I say, but also beforehand during this bleeding Kansas period of fighting for the rights of slaves. But he also seemed to be determined to stand up for the downtrodden and the oppressed wherever he went, even if you don't always agree with, you know, his methods. He was... A little bit too quick with his pistol here and there. But there's no doubt that he was, largely speaking, a good bloke with a big heart. Anyway, he fought for the Jayhawkers, who were, as I say, seeking to ensure Kansas became a free state, not a slave state, which, of course, it did. In 1861, Kansas was admitted to the Union as a free state. And during this period, um, during this period fighting for the Jayhawkers, he met a young boy who was just 12 years old. His name was William Cody. But this boy would go on to be known as Buffalo Bill, another legendary figure from the American Old West. And uh, after, you know, striking up a friendship with uh, with William Cody as, as just a youngster, these two would actually remain friends for, for more or less their entire lives and actually ended up having, uh, you know, a, a fair bit to do with one another later on as, as this story will go on. Anyway, in 1858, after a period with the Jayhawkers, uh, he began he began his, period, his career as a lawman, did Hickok, uh, he worked as a constable in Monticello Township, and in 1859, he picked up some extra work driving stagecoaches for a freight company. And it was at this point that he started using his dad's name, William, rather than his own James. Now, I wasn't able to find out exactly why, but that's what happened around this period, you know, just before 1860, he started calling himself William rather than James or JB. Um, anyway. He's working as a stagecoach driver, and it was on one of these journeys, something interesting happened. In 1860, he ended up in a fight with a bear, of all things. This bear was blocking the road, so uh, Wild Bill, or, or William as he's known at this stage, not quite wild yet, uh, he tried to shoot the bear, but it returned the attack and leapt on top of him and started savaging him. Now, Hickok somehow managed to fight it off. I don't know how he managed to do this, but he actually managed to fight this bear off and kill it with his knife. Imagine this, mate. He fought a bear and won, and he didn't even win an Oscar for it. Anyway, he's bunged up for quite a while after tussling with the bear, as you'd imagine. But once he recovered, 
the freight company put him back to work this time in the stables right one of the stable hands at this at one of their stations in 1860 uh, in 1861 and while Hickok was working at this station right he's he's, he's hanging around making sure the station's all uh, you know looking after the horses making sure everything's spick and span anyway this bloke named david mccandless turns up now david mccandless he's no good sort he's a loudmouth bully he loved to pick on people be a nasty buggy you know the kind but unfortunately the station owed him some money so he'd come to collect now, I'd already said that Hickok doesn't like bullies here, and McCandless ended up biting off a fair bit more than he could chew as he came to collect this debt. If you've seen pictures of Hickok, you'll know that, look, he's a tall bloke, he was tall and a bit, bit gangly, but uh, his face, right, if you have a look at his face, he, he had a bit of a big schnoz, he did have a big nose, and his lips kind of stuck out a bit, like uh, kind of like a girl in an Instagram picture, right? Anyway, because of this, McCandless had given Hickok a nickname, right? He called him Duckbill, right? So William Hickok calling him Duckbill. Yep, very clever indeed. But as you can imagine, Hickok didn't love this. Anyway, McCandless, he's there at the station demanding money from the bloke who run it. Hickok, uh, he's on hand to uh, to hear this argument. He's, he's standing by to see what'll happen. And McCandless ends up making a, uh, a, bit of, a bit of a blunder here because what he did is he ended up threatening the staff of the station with violence, including the man that he had foolishly named Duckbill. And this proved to be the very last mistake he would ever make. Because, well, look, the details are a little hazy, but whatever the reason, after this altercation, guns were drawn and fired, and you'll never believe it, McCandless and two of his gang were shot and killed. Now, this was the first time, if we are to attribute these deaths to Hickok, which is very likely, this is the first time that Hickok had taken someone's life. But I'll tell you this, of course, not going to be the last. But his skill with a pistol here spelt the end for not only McCandless, but, you know, many other people who crossed him later in life. And I'll tell you this, no one called him Duckbill from that point on. After this, he actually started to be referred to as Wild Bill, right? And uh, with good bloody reason, you'd think. But somewhat sadly as well, I mean, you know, he's killed a bloke over calling him Duckbill, we think. Uh, and it obviously really got under this poor bloke's skin. Not the dead bloke, I mean, he's dead, whatever. Uh, it obviously got under Hickok's skin because after this, right, after this altercation in 1861 at this, uh, at this station, he ended up growing a moustache, which he kept for the rest of his life. So he might have been a bit, of, a bit self-conscious about those beautiful pouty lips of him, the poor bastard. Anyway, mustachioed now, uh, as we move on through 1861, of course, and uh, as, as uh, students of American history will know, the other big thing that, that happened in 1861 was the beginning of the American Civil War, and it wasn't too long before Wild Bill joined up to serve with the Union Army. Now, initially, he drove coaches and wagons about for them. Obviously, that was his job with this uh, freight company, so he was well suited to do it for the Union Army as well. So he started doing that for a while, but in 1862, he instead joined a military brigade and worked as a scout. While he was working as a scout, right, for this brigade, he actually ran into Buffalo Bill again during this time. Uh, Buffalo Bill was also working as a scout. I don't know how much they actually worked together, but they definitely at least ran into each other and were associated with each other during the war, at least in a, in a you know, minor capacity. Um, and the story goes from Buffalo Bill. He claims that uh, Wild Bill may have even worked as a spy. Buffalo Bill cl- claimed in later years that he had spotted Wild Bill dressed as a Confederate gathering information for the union now this has not been confirmed independently outside of buffalo bill who you know may have been flapping his gavel a little bit about his mate but if that is true not only was wild bill out there you know scouting finding reports doing recon for the union army also he's putting himself in grave danger dressing up as a confederate and going to try to gather information as a spy now look again we don't know that this is 100 percent true there's something we'll come to a little bit later on that may cast some doubt on this as we've uh, as you'll see 
But whatever the case, right, Wild Bill, he fought for the Union as a scout, maybe as a spy, and uh, and then later on as a marshal in the military police, making sure the Union uh, the Union soldiers uh, behave themselves, especially those who are on leave and uh, and taking breaks, whatever else. Now, look, you know, to be honest, he didn't have a particularly distingu- distinguished career during the Civil War. He wasn't a hero. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't going out and single-handedly seizing objectives and, you know, killing tons of, uh, of Confederates in one go at these big battles or whatever. But he was on the right side of history, and he did acquit himself well enough as uh, you know, as as part of this Union Army, obviously, as they worked their way towards victory. But after the war, after the war had concluded, Wild Bill moved to a town in Kansas, which is obviously now a state, called Springfield. And it was there in Springfield that he started to get into gambling. And uh, the reason I'm sort of hurrying on towards this part of the story is that it's what it's what happened here in Springfield in 1865 that I'm most excited to tell you about when it comes to this bloke's life. Because on the 21st of July in 1865, a gunfight took place between Hickok and another bloke whose name is Davis Tutt. Now, this was a, uh, this was a, a, well, I I was going to say, you know, the stereotypical Western quick draw duel, right? The sort of thing that you see in Western films all the time. But the truth of the matter is that in reality, duels like this were very rare indeed. Very rare. Only a handful of them actually ever happened. And the Hickok Tut shootout is definitely the most famous one, I would say. It's kind of like how one single pirate, William Kidd, might have buried treasure one time, but we still go about like, you know, that's all that pirates were ever, do, ever doing was burying their treasures and burying treasure and writing maps with X's on them, even though that that happened once, maybe, right? We go about in westerns thinking that cowboys are always dueling each other on, on you know, on, on dusty main roads. But this was an incident. This was a, a, an occurrence uh, or, or an example of when that actually did take place. And it's thought that this duel became so famous that it became a cornerstone, you know, a, a, a linchpin of this of this western genre of of, of popular, you know, western fiction. Uh, the quick draw duel, even if they're not all based on this, certainly they are very heavily influenced by the fact that this one happened and that's why it's such a popular trope in the medium. Anyway, anyway, back in Springfield, 1865, Hickok, he's cutting about, he's making his money as a gambler, but during this time he fell out with a former friend of his, this fella Davis Tut. Now, apparently Tut had been trying to cut Hickok's lunch going after a girl that he was seeing, but then again, Hickok might have also been sleeping with Tut's sister, who knows? Point is, they didn't like each other very much anymore, whatever the reason was. So much so, right, that Hickok now refused to play cards at any table that included Tut. He just wouldn't do it. He couldn't stand the bloke. Well, Tut's response to this was marvellously petty. What he would do, he would find where Wild Bill was playing, and rather than, you know, sit down and ruin the game by getting Wild Bill to stand up and leave, what he would do is instead stand near the table behind Wild Bill's opponents and offer them advice and even money, right, so they would continue playing against him and hopefully beat him. Imagine this. These blokes are being this petty. Tut is standing behind the other gamblers, staking them back in when they busted, telling them how to play their cards so they could beat Wild Bill. So obviously, you know, you can see there's a fair bit of, uh, of animosity between these two blokes. But one night, right, one night, Hickok is doing particularly well for himself at the poker table. He's won around 200 bucks, which is well over three grand in today's money. Uh, he's, he's doing very well indeed. Uh, and most of this money that he's won has come from Tut's pockets as he's propping up the other players and Wild Bill is just happily, you know, winning it off these players who are being bankrolled by uh, by Tut. 
Now, Tut is very bloody pissed off about this, as you can imagine. He's just pissing money into the wind here. And he starts to have a go at Wild Bill. He says to him, now, listen here, mate, you know, you're doing all this winning, but don't you forget, you owe me 40 bucks. There's that uh, horse trade that we made a, a while back, and you owe me $40 from that. And Wild Bill goes, mate, you got a good point. Yes, indeed, I do owe you $40. Peels off 40, uh, 40 bucks of the money that he's just won, which, again, was mostly Tut's, and hands it over to him cool as a cucumber. Well, this isn't good enough for Tut, who then goes, oh, well, actually, mate, you owe me another $35 from a poker game the other week. I haven't forgotten about that one either. And Wobble goes, well, hang on, mate, hold, hold your horses here. I remember that one, but it was only 25 bucks. I've, I've actually got a, an IOU written down here I can show you. It was only 25 Don't you try to fleece me. But Tut insists, no, no, it's 35 That's all I'm accepting. So even though Wild Bill, you know, offers him this $25 that he says he owes him here, no, no, Tut is not taking it. And in order to embarrass Wild Bill in the middle of this poker game that he's winning, Tut grabs Wild Bill's pocket watch and says that he's holding it as collateral against this unpaid debt. Now, this may not sound like much to us these days, but back in the day here amongst gamblers in the Old West, this was a grievous insult. This was a very big deal for a couple of reasons. First of all, very bloody nice pocket watch. Gold thing it was, fancy, and Wild Bill was very proud of it. He loved, you know, it was one of his prized possessions. He loved strutting about with his golden pocket watch because very fancy. But secondly, and much more importantly, taking collateral like this, it very clearly broadcasts that Tut didn't believe that Wild Bill was good for it. He didn't think, he didn't trust Wild Bill to repay the debt that he owed. And this was an insult to a gambling man because being accused of, you know, being bankrupt, being insolvent, being unable to, to pay the money that you owe to cover the debts that you have, right, as a gambler was a very black mark against your name. And so Tut has really humiliated Wild Bill by taking this watch and saying, well, listen, mate, this is collateral because I don't think you're going to pay the debts you owe. Now, we know that Wild Bill doesn't take insults like that lying down, does he? But the hotel that they're playing in is full of Tut's mates, and like any good gambler, Wild Bill, he knows when to hold them and he knows when to fold them. And he was absolutely furious, of course. He's spitting chips, but he, I mean, he can't believe that he's been insulted like this in the middle of a game. However, he knows he can't lash out then and there, or he'll get in a lot of trouble and probably even killed because there's all these other blokes who are, you know, aligned to align with Tut in this thing. So even after having been accused of, you know, being dishonorable, untrustworthy as a fellow gambler, he's very, very cool. He turns to Tut and he says, mate, put the watch back down, right? And we can, we can talk about this uh, in the future. But Tut, of course, he's now, he's now, the die is cast for him. So all he does, he gives him a nasty smile and he walks straight out of the, out of the hotel still with the watch. And in the coming days, Tut's insult was made all the worse when all of his mates continue to bait Wild Bill about him. They're hoping that Wild Bill will draw, draw his pistol in anger and give them a reason to shoot him dead in, you know, in self-defense. If he draws his pistol, then they can all, uh, they can all shoot him and, and, and claim that it was, it was a justified homicide. But uh, Wild Bill, he's not rising to the bait. He wasn't so wild after all, it seems. He did his best to keep a cool head. He's ignoring the insults or the provocation until the 21st of July when the issue finally came to a head. In the days leading up to this, right, Tut had gone about town saying that he was going to wear the watch publicly and cut about the town square with it to further embarrass Wild Bill. Now, again, this is, this is escalating the situation. This is making the insult even worse. And Wild Bill knew that he had to answer. He couldn't let this insult stand. And so he warned Tut not to do what he said he was going to do by saying he shouldn't come across that square unless dead men can walk. But here's the thing, right? Hickok finally rising to the bait like this. That also escalated things because now Tut couldn't back down from, you know, walking across the square like he said he was going to do because if he, if he bailed on that, 
then people would know that he was scared of Wild Bill and they'd call him a coward. So the whole thing is just a great big mess of colliding egos, absolutely ridiculous, but it all comes a gutsa on the 21st, as I said, because at 10 o'clock in the morning on the 21st of July, Tut prances across the town square, openly wearing Wild Bill's prized golden pocket watch. And it wasn't long before Wild Bill heard of this and made his way to the town square to try to negotiate the watch's return. But that doesn't go too well either, because now Tut wants $45, not $35, and certainly not the $25 that Hickok agrees that he owes him. So the standoff continues. Now, they talk about it. The two men actually leave the square to have a drink together to try to sort it out, but they can't come to an agreement, and the situation continues. Tut returns to the square, still prancing about with the watch dangling from his waistcoat. But as afternoon turns to evening, things get even more involved, and things escalate even further when Wild Bill returned to the square, this time with his pistol drawn. Now, the crowds in the square, they're obviously all wanting to watch on to see what's going to happen, but seeing this, you know, potentially very deadly development, the bloke walking out with his, uh, swinging his gun around, they realise, okay, we better make ourselves scarce here and because uh, <laughs> uh, none of them want to be caught in the crossfire. So, they run for safety. They leave Tut by himself in one of the corners of the square. It's just Wild Bill and Davis Tut there facing off against each other. Now, Wild Bill, he walks up, he holsters his pistol, and he says to Tut, don't you come across here with that watch. But Tut turns to face him and puts his hand on his holstered pistol. So the two of them stood there facing each other, hands ready to draw and fire their pistols. A rare historical example, again, as I say, of this quick-draw duel actually taking place. I cannot confirm the tumbleweeds, you know, blew across the square. Probably they didn't, but that's very much the scene. This classic Western scene that we see in films and whatever else, a lot of it is based on this standoff between Davis Tutt and Wild Bill Hickok. Now, we don't know who drew first. But we do know that they both fired at more or less exactly the same time, according to the witnesses there. However, they, bo- they, bo- they weren't both exactly as accurate, I can tell you this, because Tut missed altogether. He didn't hit anything. While Wild Bill, of course, hit Tut dead in the chest. Tut staggered toward, towards a, near, a nearby building after being shot and then collapsed on the street and died. So Wild Bill, of course, won the duel. I mean, obviously he won the duel. The, the whole episode's about him, and you can see there's still a fair bit left to go, so it wouldn't have been much of a story if he'd been shot here by, by Davis Tutt. But just think that, you know, I'm not going to say there's 100% blanket, blanket statement accuracy or whatever, but just think that more or less every single quick-draw showdown you've seen in a Western film is at least paying homage to maybe not this duel in particular, but probably something like it, and honestly probably this one, because it is the most famous one, the one where Wild Bill shot a man dead because of a pocket watch. Anyway, of course, he was arrested a couple of days after this. You can't just go around shooting people in town squares over pocket watches. He, uh, he was arrested and uh, he stood trial for manslaughter. But after all the witness testimony and everything else, he was ultimately given a verdict of not guilty. This verdict wasn't in keeping with the law. In fact, it was well outside what the law suggested. The judge instructed the jury that under the law, they had to find Wild Bill guilty. But he also said, he contradicted himself by also telling the jury that there was an unwritten law of the fair fight that could result 
in a not guilty verdict, particularly as Tut had started the whole thing by taking the watch and because Wild Bill was known to have given Tut so many opportunities to back down and return it without resorting to violence. It's not as if as soon as he picked up the watch, you know, Wild Bill, Wild Bill just shot him through the head. There was a protracted series of negotiations and, you know, neither of the blokes uh, backed down, but Tut certainly didn't take, opportunity, take advantage of the opportunities that Wild Bill gave him to resolve the situation. So, as a result, because of this fair fight, unwritten rule of the, of the West... The jury found Wild Bill not guilty, which gives you an example of how the law was, or I suppose wasn't, applied in these parts in these times. Take a man's watch as collateral and you've only got yourself to blame if you're gunned down in a duel a couple of days later. That was the Old West. Despite this, the verdict was very unpopular with many people in Springfield, particularly Tut's mates, as you can imagine. And there was even some talk of lynching Wild Bill in the wake of it. So as a result, Wild Bill very wisely decided that it might be time for a bit of a change of scenery for him. And so he moved on to his next adventures. And I'll tell you this, there were plenty of them. After leaving Springfield, Wild Bill cut around, he cut about in Kansas and, and elsewhere for a while, tried his hand at a couple of different things here and there. He worked as a scout briefly for General George Custer. You may have heard of him. Uh, Custer late, uh, later wrote how... Uh, impressed he was while by Wild Bill's marksmanship during the Indian Wars. Uh, but after a while, he began to involve himself in law enforcement. He joined the U.S. Marshals as a deputy, and at one point he worked along his old, his old friend Buffalo Bill once again uh, for a while here as part of the Marshals. Between 1865 and 1869, did all sorts of things. Some of them admirable, others less so. Uh, he chased down army deserters for the Marshals. He fought and, tore, uh, and took Native American prisoners. Uh, he worked as a scout for a segregated African-American army unit. So a, a bit of a mixed bag there, you'd think. few things to tally on the right side of history, a couple of things that haven't aged so well. Obviously, you know, as a white man working willingly with a, with a segregated African-American army unit, obviously, you know, that, that, that very clearly shows his perspective on issues like this. But then again, you know, he was, uh, he was part of the, the, the Indian Wars where, I mean, as is so often the case in... in Colonial nations, uh, horrendous atrocities were, were committed against uh, indigenous populations. So, look, you know, as I say, a couple, uh, couple of things on both sides of the ledger there for, uh, for Wild Bill. But ultimately, in, uh, in, in 1869, after this period of, uh, of cutting about as, as a marshal, as a scout, whatever else, in 1869, he, he settled, well, I was going to say he settled down. He didn't do that. He didn't settle down. He, he I should say, he, he uh, confined himself to one spot, more or less, and began his career as a lawman, and as you'll see, this did not involve settling down. He became a city marshal and a sheriff in Hayes City in Kansas, where he'd worked before, uh, you know, during this, during this period with the marshals, been in and out of Hayes City. Uh, and he quickly gained a reputation as a lawman who, as you might have guessed, didn't take too much guff from anyone. In fact, as his first, in, in his first month as the sheriff, he killed two men. So, yeah, he didn't have a whole lot of chill as a lawman. A bloke named Bill Mulvey met his end, thanks, thanks to Wild Bill. After running amok through the town, Mulvey was pissed as a newt. He's on horseback, he's waving around his guns, he's shooting out windows and mirrors, he's shooting the bottles on shelves in bars. Absolute chaos it was. And people are trying to get him to stop. They're telling him, you know, that their new sheriff wouldn't take kindly to this behaviour, but Mulvey doubled down on this, uh, you know, on, on the chaos he was causing by claiming that he had come to kill Wild Bill. So, I mean, yeah, no worries there. When uh, when Mulvey finally met and confronted Wild Bill, he raised his rifle and pointed it at the sheriff. And Wild Bill didn't seem even slightly bothered by this. In fact, he responded in a very relaxed fashion. He he looked at a spot behind Mulvey and he waved his hand at the people behind him. Said, "Oh no no no! Don't shoot him in the back. He's drunk." Now Mulvey he thought 
that Wild Bill was, you know, waving to people behind him about to shoot him, he thought that he was about to be attacked from the rear. So he turned his horse around to face these supposed aggressors behind him and he saw no one, just the crowd that had been gathered, you know, to, that had gathered to see the showdown. Wild Bill tricked him. He tricked Mulvey into turning away from him. And again, it was the last mistake that he'd ever make because while Mulvey was distracted, Wild Bill drew his pistol and shot him through the head. So... That's one way to solve a problem, I suppose. Wild Bill also shot another man not too long after this. Details on this killing are a little scant, almost suspiciously so, really. In the early hours of one morning, Wild Bill was called to a saloon where there was a drunken cowboy named Samuel Strawhorn who was causing a ruckus. Apparently, Samuel uh, <coughs> made remarks against Hickok. Those are all the details that I could find, and Wild Bill shot him through the head for it. So... Maybe Strawhorn called him Duckbill. Who knows? Whatever the reason, Wild Bill had again restored order in his own special way. Uh, and even after an investigation into this shooting, he wasn't punished or penalised. So, uh, again, maybe a little too quick on the draw there, Wild Bill, as a sheriff. But certainly he knew how to keep people uh, in line, I guess. I don't know. Eventually, Wild Bill left Hayes City after losing the next election uh, for, for the position. Uh, as, uh, as sheriff and marshal. Instead, he moved to the town of Abilene, which is still in Kansas. And Abilene, I'll tell you this, he'd had a reputation as a very rough and rowdy place. Now, he worked as the marshal there, continuing his career as a lawman. And it was in Abilene that he met the infamous John Wesley Harden. Now, John Wesley Harden, we might have to do a whole episode on, on this bloke because he, his story is as ridiculous as they come. But, I mean, even before coming to Abilene, Harden, he was a hardened killer. He was on the run from the law. By his claims, he'd already shot scores of men. He'd escaped from prison, fled to Abilene after an assumed name, uh, under an assumed name, Wesley Clemens. But even with all that on his resume, Harden wasn't going to cross Wild Bill. The first encounter they had goes a long way in demonstrating that. Wild Bill, by this stage, was very well known. In 1857, a, a story had been published far and wide across the United States about this duel that he'd had with Tut. He was known as a very, very hard lawman, someone that you didn't want to cross, someone who was obviously a fiend with a pistol. So he was quite a famous figure even during his own lifetime. And even someone like John Wesley Harden, this, uh, this wild cowboy, wasn't going to cross someone like Wild Bill. Because have a listen to this story of how they first met. Absolutely ridiculous. In Abilene at this time, there was a saloon, right, called the Bull's Head Tavern. Now, Abilene, broadly speaking, as I say, a bit of a rough town. Uh, it was it was it was known to be filled with uh, you know the the sort of the 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 rugged kind of people you associate with the American West. And in the Bull's Head Tavern, the owners, uh, ex-lawman Ben Thompson and gambler Phil Coe, they had painted a great big bull on the side of their uh, of their tavern. Uh, something of an attraction, you know, all well and good, you think. Bit of advertising, big, big bull painted on the side of your saloon, no worries there. Except that they also painted the bull complete with a great big dick. A great big stiffy staring in the face of everyone walking down past the, the bull's head tavern. More than one bull's head to look at as you walk past it. Uh, and many people in Abilene, they didn't like walking past a uh, such a... <clears throat> aggressive painting and so they complained to wild bill now wild bill he was sympathetic to these complaints he went down to the tavern he told thompson and co to remove the offending image but they refused they said they liked their big bull dick just where it was thank you very much and so wild bill as you, uh, wild bill as you can expect he took matters into his own hands and defaced the painting to remove the willy himself now this move was not popular with thompson and co they turned to a young man who was new in town who seemed very handy with a pistol and they tried to persuade him to kill Wild Bill. 
Now, this young man, of course, as you probably guessed, was in fact John Wesley Harden, living under this assumed name of Wesley Clemens. But Harden, of course, had heard of Wild Bill. He seemed to have a lot of respect for the lawman because he said to Thompson and come after they, they, they said, uh, they asked him to, to kill Wild Bill. He said, if Bill needs killing, why don't you kill him yourself? And in fact, when Wild Bill finally met Harden and demanded that he hand over his pistols, as, as was required by the town ordinance, Harden actually complied, although he did test his luck by demonstrating what's known as the road agent spin to Wild Bill as he handed over his pistols. It's a very, it's, it's a very difficult manoeuvre to not only pull off, but also describe. Um, I suggest you, you, you jump online have a, and watch a video demonstration. Essentially what it involves is seemingly, uh, so y- you, know, you can imagine the, the, the classic revolver, the six-shooter that you associate with people in the Old West, right? typically you would hand these guns over when you were surrendering to a lawman, you would hand them over butt first, right? And the road agent spin involves seemingly surrendering your pistols by holding them out butt first, but then cleverly and very quickly spinning them around in your hand in the blink of an eye, right? And pointing them at the person in front of you. It's amazing how quickly some people can do it. Obviously, we're very well practiced, but I tell you what, Harden was testing his luck when he did this, you know, seemingly as a bit of a joke with Wild Bill, because obviously, you know, that's the sort of thing that Wild Bill could have uh, reacted very, very quickly and very, very fatally to. But no, it seemed that the two men uh, moved past it without issue. And, and it seemed that there was something of a uh, an understanding between the two of them. Harden was starstruck by Wild Bill, who by now, of course, was this famous figure throughout the West, particularly thanks to his duel with Tut. And so Harden seems quite, seemed quite taken with Wild Bill. And for Wild Bill's part, he had no idea that Harden was a, fusion, a fugitive criminal. And the two blokes, they seemed to get on reasonably well. Uh, so much so that when Harden left town and then came back later, Wild Bill actually didn't insist that Harden re-surrender his pistols. He actually allowed him to walk around armed, which was something that was very rare against when, uh, again, uh, when against the town ordinance. So you can see there that Wild Bill definitely had a bit of respect for Harden, even, again, not knowing who he was. But this proved to uh, this proved to have quite deadly consequences. Wild Bill's decision to let Harden, you know, go around toting his guns in town. Because uh, what happened was this, right? Harden ended up shooting another man, as you'd expect. He's already got quite a body count, and he added to it uh, there in Abilene one night. Uh, he shot another man for snoring too loudly. Harden was staying in a hotel with a cousin and a mate of his, right? And his mate was snoring so loudly that after Harden had yelled at him to be quiet. He picked up his pistol and shot through the wall, shot through the hotel wall to try to wake him up, right, and and get him to stop snoring, Uh, except instead of waking him up, it had rather the opposite effect. He shot his mate stone dead, and Harden had to then flee Abilene and the Wrath of Wild Bill, obviously, and he gained a fearsome reputation after this as a man who would kill you for snoring. Anyway, this wasn't the end of uh, Wild Bill's adventures in Abilene. In October 1871, he once again was locking horns with Thompson and Co., those of the, Bill, the, the, the big bull dick. Uh, obviously, these two, they couldn't stand Wild Bill. They wanted him gone. Dead or alive didn't seem to matter, matter to them. Wild Bill had done a lot to, to tame the town of Abilene. It was, it was much less of a, of a Wild West town with, uh, with Bill at the helm. Um, and Abilene and Co. really, really didn't like Wild Bill. And uh, there, look, there are varying accounts of what happened in this final standoff between these uh, between these blokes. I'll give you a, 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 as well-rounded an account as possible. There are, there are differing and sometimes contradictory accounts of, of what took place here. One night, 
there was a ruckus at the Bull's Head Tavern. The cause is still unclear. Some witnesses to the uh, to the event claimed that Thompson and Co had deliberately got a bunch of people drunk. They've, they'd you know been plying all the people who'd come to drink at the tavern with booze and had been trying to uh, you know stir up trouble against Wild Bill. Uh, that may not have been the case. It may have just been, you know, another rowdy night at the tavern. We're not sure. But whatever the case, Wild Bill, obviously, you know, the great big carry-on happening down the, the Bull's Head Tavern. He had to head down and uh, and try to sort out and investigate what's going on, figure out what's going on with all these drunken wound-up louts that are making a big bloody fuss at the tavern. And he suspected trouble, Wild Bill. He did. He knew that Thompson and co. might be up to something. And so he, he went in ready for a fight. Some versions say that co. fired his pistols first, uh, in his words, at a stray dog, and so Wild Bill ordered the arrest of Co for uh, for shooting a gun inside the town. But the other version is that Wild Bill went in, right, with his own pistols drawn, suspecting trouble from Thompson and Co, uh, and found Co was armed as well. Whatever the case, right, whatever the case, whether Co had fired or whether Wild Bill walked in with his pistols drawn, uh, Wild Bill ordered Co to drop his weapons, but Co did not, and he began to turn towards Wild Bill began to, you know, turn his weapons towards the lawman. And so, Wild Bill, of course, we know how quick he is with his pistol. He shot Co dead on the spot, just like that. But then, a second after this happened, there was movement in the crowd and someone began to run, to run forwards towards Wild Bill. And again, this bloke, fastest drawer in the West, he turned and shot the man who had moved. And this man proved to be Special Deputy Marshal Mike Williams, a friend of Wild Bill's who was moving forward to help him. Wild Bill had shot a fellow lawman and a friend and it couldn't have hit him harder. He left his job as a marshal, he left Abilene and he was haunted by this accidental killing for the rest of his life, the poor bastard. Unable or unwilling to continue as a lawman, Wild Bill wandered east where a couple of years later in 1873, he ran once again into his old mate, Buffalo Bill. Now, by this point, Buffalo Bill, he was running popular and very successful Wild West shows with a troupe of entertainers. He put on plays and performances that were all themed about the frontier. And Buffalo Bill invited Wild Bill to be part of these shows as a genuine legend from the Wild Frontier. And would you believe it? Wild Bill Hickok, I mean, he accepted the offer. But this bloke, right, who had won tense, quick-draw duels, he fought off a bear, by himself. He fought for the Union as a scout and maybe even a spy. This bloke who had shot other men dead for watches and paintings of bull's dicks and being called Duckbill, this fearless, rugged lawman of the Wild West, he absolutely could not handle being on stage. After everything he'd done, after all the life and death situations he'd navigated, the enemies he'd faced down and fought and left dead in his wake, he couldn't deal with a bit of stage fright. He would flub his lines. He used to hide behind the scenery on stage. And the story goes, one time he even shot out a stage light when it was focused on him. This bloke was not built to be an actor. That much was obvious. And so it wasn't very long before Buffalo Bill ended up having to pull Wild Bill out of the shows, which I can't imagine Wild Bill minded all that much. He really did not to not seem to enjoy his time in the limelight there. But unfortunately, after this, things didn't get much better for our poor mate here. Still haunted by the fact that he'd killed his friend and fellow marshal, he was never again able to work as a lawman, and so he wandered about in the coming years somewhat aimlessly, really. He was arrested a couple of times as a vagrant. In 1876, he was given some heartbreaking news by a doctor in Kansas City. He had glaucoma, and he was losing his sight. 
Poor Wild Bill, after this, he decided to head further west and seek his fortune in South Dakota. Uh, he travelled into the town of Deadwood on a wagon train. This very same wagon train brought, Cal- uh, brought Calamity Jane out there with him. You might have heard of Calamity Jane, another famous figure from the Old West. Uh, she might be worth an episode as well, you, you would have thought. Uh, and she seemed to quite like Wild Bill a lot, although the same can't be said to him. He didn't seem to have too much time for her. Anyway, they arrived in Deadwood together, and Wild Bill did what he could do to make a living, including returning to a favourite pastime of his, gambling. And it was through this pastime that he finally met his end. Wild Bill was in the, in the habit of gambling at a place called Nuttle and Man's Saloon in Deadwood, and it was there, I'm sorry to say, that he lost his life. On the 1st of August 1976, Wild Bill was playing poker, and he was sitting in his usual spot in this saloon with his back against the wall, facing the entrance, so he could see who was coming and going. And when a spot at the table opened, a bloke named Jack McCall sat down to play. He was a young bloke, he was drunk as a skunk, and he did a lot of losing very quickly. Now, Wild Bill, after, you know, having taken all this money off of McCall, after having watched him lose and get more and more obnoxious about it, Wild Bill suggested that McCall should perhaps, uh, McCall it a knife. Oh, thank you. Uh, and cut his losses. Uh, and he gave the young man some money so that he could go away, you know, find sleep off the booze and uh, and, and get up in the morning and buy, uh, buy himself some breakfast. Now, McCall, I mean, he accepted the money, but he didn't seem to like this very much at all. He was insulted at the charity, it seems. And even the next day, he was bent on revenge for this for this humiliation that he'd suffered at the hands of Wild Bill. The next day, Wild Bill returned to Nuttall and uh, Mans to continue gambling, but rather than sitting in his usual spot, he had to sit with his back to the door. There was a bloke that was sitting in his usual spot and refused. Even after Wild Bill asked him more than once, he asked him a couple of times to move, he refused to switch seats with Wild Bill and give him his usual spot so he could watch the entrance. And this refusal, I'm very sorry to say, ended up costing Wild Bill his life. At one point during the game, Jack McCall, you know, after having been embarrassed by Wild Bill the night before, entered the saloon, walked up behind Wild Bill, put a pistol to the back of his head, and fired, killing Wild Bill instantly, dead at just 39 years of age. Now, McCall was arrested, he was tried, and he was hanged for the murder of Wild Bill, but that didn't bring back the legendary gunfighter. The story of Wild Bill Hickok ended at that table in Nuttall and Mans. He was buried in Deadwood, but three years later he was moved to the Mount Moriah Cemetery, and that's where his gravesite can be found even today. And that, my friends, is the tale of Wild Bill Hickok, one of the most famous and well-known figures of the American Old West, a bloke who, especially in contrast to many other famous people from this time and place in history, really did see for the most, seem for the most part to be one of the good guys. It's difficult to give that title to anyone who went around killing people, but Wild Bill Hickok really did seem to stand for the downtrodden and the oppressed. He really did seem to try to bring a semblance of, of order and fairness and justice to the Wild West. Fighting for a free Kansas, scouting for an African-American unit, just as, as well as his you know, work as a merciless but ultimately just lawman. He did fight in the Indian Wars, it's true. But largely speaking, Wild Bill Hickok did what he could to tame some of the nastier wildness of the frontier by standing up to bullies and outlaws in the name of the law. He did leave one final legacy I want to finish up with here to close out the show. I want to, I want to tell you something that will be very familiar, I suppose, to, to anyone who enjoys the odd game of poker. In poker, there's a certain hand you can get. It's a hand that consists of two black aces and two black eights. And it's known as the dead man's hand. And the reason for that, of course, is none other than Wild Bill Hickok himself. 
This has never been historically verified and the actual, actual composition of the dead man's hand has changed over the years, so take it with a grain of salt. But the story goes that when Wild Bill was shot by Jack McCall, that was the hand that he had. Two black aces and two black eights, the dead man's hand. Wild Bill Hickok's story only became more and more famous after his death, as it and stories like it were published in dime novels and then eventually, of course, made into films and TV shows. So many tropes and cliches in the Western genre come from men like Wild Bill. And specifically, as I said, things like the quick-draw duel or the, ru- the ruthless lawman. So in this and in so many other ways, the story of Wild Bill Hickok has shaped and influenced many parts of our history and culture today in cowboy stories, in Western films, and even, if you believe it, the names we give a hand in poker. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Wild Bill Hickok. And what a wild story it was. I do hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to get across it. And and thanks to all the people who are writing in with suggestions, especially the two who got in touch to suggest that I have a look at... uh, Well, I I mean, I guess they told me to look at, like, Old West stories, I suppose. And then I went off on this Wild Bill Hickok tangent. But all the same, thanks to Bodden and thanks to Richard for uh, for getting in touch. If you'd like to do the same thing, please do. Halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form on the website where you can get in touch and send through an episode uh, suggestion. It's great to hear from people, of course. And if you want to support the show financially, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory. That's the place to do it. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can start your uh, your subscription and uh, get access to all sorts of things, behind the scenes stuff, uh, uncut episodes, early access, whatever else. So thank you very much to the people who are doing that. And of course, thank you to you for listening, especially those of you who are sharing the uh, the podcast with other people and getting uh, getting this dumb, uh, this dumb podcast into more ears every week. Thank you very much to the, those of you who are out there proselytizing. Anyway, that is that for this week. Going to leave you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit, this one, a uh, quite a serious cowboy question here, you know, and, and even though we, we've talked about the fact that Wild Bill wasn't technically speaking a cowboy, it, it's definitely, again, a very strong association from the time of the Old West here. And this question, this cowboy question, it comes to us from K Marky Mark, who asks, <clears throat> if you wear cowboy clothes, are you ranch dressing? Ranch dressing?